I love it, you know. I, um, I wanted to stand right away when we started singing that song, but I thought, well, if I stand, then everybody's going to stand, and they're only going to stand because I'm the pastor, and they didn't really, then nobody stood. So, um, anyway, <laughs> what a great song. Powerful message. Um, don't you just love God? I mean, really? Don't you just love him? I, yeah, praise God. How much? Hey, I, you know, Memorial Weekend, I wanted to say from the bottom of my heart my gratitude for all the men and women who have served down through the history of our nation and protecting the freedom that we have. Uh, we owe them so much honor and so much gratitude and all the stories um, of what people have done for us. Um, and of course, for all of us, remembering those we love who, um, who are no longer with us. And so this is a really important weekend. Amen. Yeah, amen, thank you. Well, I'm curious to see how many of us would identify what is perhaps what you would say the uh, most well-known and famous verse in the Bible. Any ideas on that? What's the most well-known verse? You, just, you don't have to give me the verse. Just give me the reference. John 3.16, right? Many, many people are aware. I mean, it's just amazing how many people know this verse. You don't, you don't have to go to church even to see it. Just take a ride down the interstate. Uh, there's signs with John 3.16 with a whole verse on them. It, uh, next, next to the cross, I'm guessing that it's probably one of the most common tattoos worn by Christians. I know I've seen John 3.16 uh, many, many times. And you even see it at, at, at sporting events. Uh, and, you know, Tebow, when he, uh, the eye black that he did in the 2009 championship game. Do you, know how, uh, do you know how many people went on Google and actually read that verse when he did that? 93 million people read John 3.16 as a result of that. I thought that was pretty cool. Not, not only at sporting events, but uh, all kinds of events. You remember that guy back in the 80s or the 90s or whatever who was always showing up everywhere, that guy in the center? Uh, you probably don't. Uh, some of you weren't born yet. But any, anyway. It, it, in, in, and you know, I think it's also likely that John 3.16 is one of the most memorized verses in the Bible. I, I'm pretty sure it was the first verse I memorized as a kid. Anybody else uh, memorize that verse when you were a child? R raise your hand if you did. Yeah, yeah, so let's see how well we remember it, okay? Uh, uh, I'll begin. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life. How'd you do? Get it? Yeah, I mean, we got that one. So it's likely. I'm saying it's, there's a 99.9% .9 chance that it's the most uh, well-known verse in the Bible. But I would also say that it's, perhaps it's also true that it's the most misunderstood verse in the Bible. And the reason that it's misunderstood is that because more often than not, most people never see or hear it in its context. They, they, they've never read John 3.16 with the verses surrounding it. So that's what we're going to do today. It's so important to do this, not only to understand what John 3.16 is all about, but even more important than that, for us to be able to understand, you know, truly understand who Jesus Christ is. We've, 
We've got to understand the context of John 3.16. So if you've got your Bible, uh, you can open with me to the third chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you, we bring all our scripture up in PowerPoint uh, so you, you won't miss anything. First thing to know about the first 21 verses of, uh, of the Gospel of John, third chapter, is that, and which is really the context, okay, is that it's all about a conversation between Jesus Christ and this man named Nicodemus. And I don't know if you're familiar with uh, uh, the history of the nation of Israel. There were two main religious groups uh, back then. There were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees uh, did not believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees did. That was the main difference between the two. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was also a member of, of, the, of the Jewish ruling council, so he was a very, uh, very powerful, very influential man back then. But what we discover in this passage is that unlike most of his peers who, who were very quick to reject Jesus Christ to oppose him, Nicodemus was a genuine seeker of spiritual truth. And I think he's someone, because of that, that all of us could easily identify with. He wanted to know what was true about God. He wanted to know what was true about himself. And that's why he paid a visit to Jesus Christ that night. And I think it's true. At some point, all of us find ourselves uh, thinking through the same spiritual issues that Nicodemus had on his mind. Major issues. Issues of, of life and death and eternity. And, and for Nicodemus, like it is for us, it, it all had to do with his relationship with God. Nicodemus wanted to know, and this is kind of his bottom line, he wanted to understand how it was possible for any person, included himself, to know with, with total certainty that when he died, he would spend eternity with God in heaven. That was very important to him. And I'm guessing we can all relate to that question, right? I thought about it as a child. It's even more important to me now as a, as a 62-year-old guy. I mean, after all, up next to eternity, life is very short, isn't it? I mean, it's like, like you know, like... God, you know, I can't even get a small enough thing compared to the length of life. You know, I could put my fingers together and it, would, it wouldn't, wouldn't quite do it. Eternity just goes on and on, so it only makes sense that Nicodemus and every single one of, uh, one of us would do more, far more than just give it passing, passing thought. Everything Jesus said in the first 15 verses leads to this amazing statement in John in John chapter 3 and verse 16, it, it, but it's what he said after verse 16 that makes it possible for us to understand exactly what Jesus meant when he said what he said in, in that 16th verse. So we have, we have 15 verses leading to verse 16, and then five verses emphasizing what you and I need to do in response to what Jesus said in, in verse 16. And it's, that, it's, those, it's those five verses after verse 16 that we're going to focus on this morning. So we'll read them. Let me read them, and, and then we'll dig in, all right? So John chapter 3, verse 16, and again, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. 
This is the verdict. Uh, light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth uh, comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Now, there's one more verse that I want to read. It's verse 36. It's what John the Baptist said to his disciples about Jesus Christ. And it's very similar to what Christ himself said. He's, in verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Here's what these verses show us about Jesus Christ. And uh, it's what I would say today's answer to the question we're, an, we're ask, asking and answering in this series, who is Jesus Christ? And it's the big truth that I'd like you to take home with you today. And, and it's this statement, Jesus is a God of love and wrath. And I would just say this is, if you, if you uh, in fact, you know what? Uh, this is one of those Sundays I would especially well, every Sunday, but really encourage you to take notes, okay? And I'll tell you what to write down here, because it will really help you. And really think of this as, uh, uh, like, like after first service, one of the guys came up to me afterwards. He said, man, Steve, I just, you know, man, I, it was like getting a water hose of, of, of stuff coming. And, uh, and I said, yeah, and that's something, because I took out about four pages out of the sermon, you know? I mean, this is one of those times I wish we could have a follow-up session, where I could answer questions, we could, we could talk about this. So, you know, to, to help you remember what we talk about this morning, be able to use it in your own life and use it for others, I think you'd find it helpful to write things down. So, first thing to write down is Jesus. Jesus is a God of love and wrath. And now, when I said that, some of you might be thinking, oh, great. I come to church today and want to hear a sermon about an angry, wrathful God. Um, I'm hoping, if you're thinking that, you'll just hear me out on this, okay? Because I'd like to show you that you and I would not want it any other way. Any other way. We would not want Jesus to be only a God of love. We would want him to be a God of love and wrath. Now, again, last Sunday, I was totally into Jeff's sermon. And uh, remember when Jeff wrote down these words that uh, some of the staff uh, had given him as their descriptors of Jesus Christ, compassionate, loving, and gracious. And, 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 and Jeff said, you can't, help but, you can't help but like a guy like that. Actually, he said, I've fallen in love with him because of that, right? And, you know, so you look at that and you go, yeah, I like Jesus Christ. So, man, he's a good guy. And, you know, but then, but then uh, you see a word like that and you go, not so much. Uh, not only do I not like him, I don't want anything to do with him. If, he's, if, he's a, if, there's, if wrath has anything to do with Jesus Christ. I mean, isn't it true? We, we struggle with this idea of a wrathful God, a, a, a God who would condemn anybody to hell. We struggle with that. This is so much an intense, this is such an intense struggle for many people. 
But there's more than a few churches where these words have, in effect, been, been airbrushed out of Scripture. You, you don't hear anything about a God of wrath. You, there's no talk of sin. There's no talk of condemnation. There is no talk of hell. <laughs> and you might be thinking right now, well, that sounds good to me. <laughs> I, well, I, want, a, I want a church like that. I, I don't want a church that talks about a God of wrath and talks about hell. Or you might be thinking to yourself, you know what, Steve? I don't know what to think. I believe in Jesus Christ, but when he starts saying things like this, I, I don't know what to do. I'm just conflicted about it. it just, I'm confused by him saying that. Or you might be saying to yourself, well, Steve, man, I, I'm with you. I, I've thought that my whole, for as long as I can remember. You don't have to convince me. So, uh, you might say, though, but you know what, Steve? When, when, I, when I start talking to others about my faith in Jesus Christ and I start talking about, about judgment and condemnation and, and hell, I get so, so much pushback. And I, I, I do not know what to say in response to people when they say that. They, they just say that. It's absolutely cruel for you to, to think something like that. Uh, that might be where you're at today, with that kind of deal. So here's what I'd like to do today. If you think it's all a bunch of nonsense, talking about a God of love and a God of wrath, I'd like to convince you that there's very good reason for Jesus being a God of, a God of love and a God of wrath. And if I can't convince you this morning, my hope is that you'd go home and you'd begin to think about this, at least, at least consider what I'm saying. Or if you're conflicted over this, I'd like you to leave today understanding why Jesus said this about himself, why we would not want him to be any other way. And if you already see it this way, what I'd like to do is give you some help in being able to explain why you believe this to others if you're given that privilege. And I, and I say it's a privilege because in terms of things that are important, I would put what we're talking about this morning way way up there, to understand that Jesus is a God of love and a God of wrath. Okay. Now, there's two main things that I'd like you to take with you today. And number one is this thing. Jesus Christ is not just a God of love or a God of wrath. He's a God of both. He's He's a God of love and wrath. So that's the first thing we're going to talk about. Number two, we're going to talk about how your concept of God, how you see this is fundamental to who you are. It's, it, it's critical to the way you live your life, to how you see yourself, how you make decisions, how you regard others, how you relate to the world in which you live, and how you prepare yourself for eternity. And we'll, and we'll talk about all of that as, as, in a few minutes. But let's begin with this then. And you want to write this down. Jesus is a God of love and wrath. Now, read through the Bible and you'll see that Scripture never sees God's love and God's wrath as being opposed to each other. 
In fact, the very opposite. The Bible shows that they're meaningless apart from each other. And, and, and it's not just that God's all wrath or all love, where these two things are fused together in Jesus Christ, so he's some kind of a, of, of a split personality. It's that they absolutely meld together. One never acts apart from the other, and they're, they're both equally a part of God's holiness. Now, you want to write that down, all right? They are both equally a part of God's holiness. Let me show you why. There's three reasons why this is true. Number one, number one, God's wrath is an expression of his love for righteousness. These days we're living in a world where the idea that there's absolute truth and absolute moral standards that are right and that God upholds those standards is an idea that's repugnant to a whole lot of people. It seems like the only absolute that many people go for is that there are no absolutes. Okay? You can believe whatever you want to believe, but just don't tell me that there are, that there are abs, absolutes. We hear that all the time. But if we think this through, who would, who would really want to live in a world where every person could choose what's right or wrong? Once we start down that road, who's going to decide how far it goes and where, where it ends? I mean, there's places in our world where, where people kill people, force people into prostitution, uh, imprison people for no good reason, enslave people, steal from people, and feel that it's their right to do. I mean, talk to them, and they'll say, ah, you have no right to tell me I can't do that. So if you bought into the idea that there's no absolute moral standard of right and wrong, what could you say to someone like that? Once you go down that road, it's only logical that you and I cannot pick and choose what's right and what's wrong. Let me ask you, who wants to live in a world also? Who would want to live in a world where there is no consequence for somebody doing wrong. Can you imagine living in a world like that? I mean, really, it would be absolute chaos. I guess there's a movie coming out. I don't think it's in the theater yet. It's called The, uh, the Purge, or Purge, or, you know, and, and uh, it's, it's, it's a movie about where for 12 hours, there will be no legal authority enforcing what's right and wrong. And so people can, there can be crime. People can do anything to anybody they want to do for 12 years, for, I mean, for 12 hours, and there would be no consequence. I mean, that's what we're talking about here, that kind of a world, if there's no God of absolutes. Consider the problem we have in our society right now. Hear it often, people saying, Oh, when are we going to get values back? And when are we going to teach ethics? And as soon as someone says that, then somebody else will say, well, whose values and whose ethics are you talking about? We argue on the one hand, it's wrong to say that there's absolute standards, but then we turn around and say, but be generous, be honest, respect life, be, be, be loyal. They, it's like we talk out of both sides of, of the mouth at the same time. C.S. Lewis put it this way, and he, you know, brilliant guy, writer from years ago. He said, in a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We take away the idea of absolute morality and standards, and then we insist that people be moral. 
at that. Christianity gives us a completely different vision. It points us to a righteous God, a God of standards. And if you think it through logically, to have a God of standards means that, that there must be a God of wrath, but, but not a cranky God of wrath, okay? Not an ill-tempered God, not a God who's reacting out of emotion. Let me illustrate. And you, I, think this, I think this is a good illustration, good way, okay? Uh, let's say a man robs a bank, okay? How does the governor of the state... And the bank president feel about this guy. I would say it's likely that the bank president is extremely upset. He's like, if you heard him, you saw him, he'd be red in the face. He, he'd want to tear that guy to pieces and say, I can't believe he did that. It's just totally emotional. The governor doesn't share the same emotion, but he's definitely opposed to the guy who robbed the bank. He, he, he has judicial responsibility to, say, to see that justice is carried out. See, I think God is like the governor. When the Bible talks about the wrath of God, it's talking about God's settled opposition to evil, to what's wrong, to what breaks his moral law. And if you think about it, who would not want a God like that? I, I can't even begin to imagine how terrible this world would be if God wasn't this way. And if God didn't expect us to do the same. So number one, God's wrath is holy because... Because it's an expression of his love for righteousness. Number two, God's wrath is holy because it's an expression of his love for creation. Creation being you and me. Becky Pippert wrote a, a book uh, with the title, Hope Has Its Reasons. And she has a section on, on God's anger where she... She, she's very open. She uh, writes about her, her own struggle with the idea of a God of wrath. And she wrote in there, she said, I always struggled with the idea of an angry God. I, I thought God was a God of love. How could God get angry against sin? How could God condemn anybody? And then she went on and she wrote this. Think of how you feel. And she's, what she's really doing, she's answering her own question. She said, think of how you feel when you see someone you love ravaged by wrong actions and relationships. How do you feel? Do you feel benign power? Are you passive? Are you mild about it? And then she speaks of two of her friends sinking deep into destruction because of drug abuse. And she says, I feel fury when I'm with them. Everything in me wants to shake them, to say to them, can't you see? Don't you know what you're doing to yourself? You're becoming less of yourself every time I see you. And then she writes this, and I just think it's utterly profound. And I, we're going to put it up because it's, I don't want you to miss it. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys Anger and love are inseparably bound in human experience. And if I, a flawed, narcissistic, sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them. 
Anger, she writes, isn't the opposite of love. Hate is the opposite of love. And the final form of hate is indifference. It's silly to think that anger and love are opposed to each other. God is angry because there's a cancer in his creation, and the cancer is sin, and the cancer is evil, and God wants to eradicate it. He wants to deal with it. God cannot have benign power and authority. See, it's all about God loving us as much as God loves us. So number one, God's wrath is holy because it is, it's an expression of his love for righteousness. And God's wrath is holy because it's an expression of his love for creation. For us. For you and me. Number three. God's wrath is holy because God's love and wrath are both satisfied at the cross. See, everybody, God can only be understood if you and I understand the cross. Because it's on the cross that the wrath of God and the love of God intersect where they meet and they, they are satisfied. And that's what John 3.16 is all about. It shows us the love of God in giving his son to die for us. And it shows the wrath of God dealing with our sin by placing that sin on his son and judging him with the judgment that you and I deserve. All of what it means when it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. John Stott describes it perfectly. He said this, man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. And God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be, on the cross. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God only, and God accepts penalties that belong to man only. Now that's it. That's it. So, first main point in today's sermon, I, I want to make sure we get it, all right? Jesus is a God of love and wrath. So if you haven't written that down, I'd say, Write that down. And it's not that he's just all wrath one minute and all love another minute where these two things are fused together so Jesus Christ is some kind of a split personality. It's that they're absolutely, they absolutely meld together. One, is, one, is, one never acts apart from the other and they're both equally a part of his holiness, his righteousness. Because, three reasons... God's wrath is an expression of his love for righteousness. It's an expression of his love for creation. And God's wrath and God's love are both satisfied at the cross. Okay? That makes sense? I just think it does. Now, here's what to do with this, okay? It's the second main point in today's sermon. And what it is, it's how to apply this truth to your own life. And, and so here's, here's the next thing. Your concept of God is fundamental to who you are. It's critical to the way you live your life. How you think about yourself, whether you value yourself or you don't value yourself. How you make the decisions in your life. What you base those decisions on. How you regard other people. Whether or not 
you know, what's best for other people really matters to you and how you relate to the world around you, whether or not you just conform to that world or you're able to think for yourself and how you prepare for eternity. Now, I'm convinced that there are two distortions of God when it comes to what we've been talking about this morning. And this is really, really important, everybody. Okay? And I've been a pastor long enough that I've had enough conversations with people who fit into one of these two distortions of God. I've, I've seen it so often, so often. And might be, one of them might be true of you. Here's the first one. It's possible that you've been raised or you grew up in a church or whatever your religious experience has been with this enlightened, what we might call today, what some people would call an enlightened view of God, where the God you believe in is only a loving God who never says no to you and doesn't hold you accountable for your sin. Now, I'm going to be... I'm, I, I, this is where I, I, I wish sometimes I could... You know, we were just like one-on-one -on -one having a conversation, so uh, if you were thinking something when I say what I'm about to say, you could, you could just say it to me and I, I could respond back. You know what I mean? Okay, okay. So here, here, let me just say this. If this describes you, then the truth is you don't have a God at all. You have an assistant. You have someone, you have a God you've created to help you on your road to getting what you want and being what you want. And, and, and you know what? If that's true of you, then you know what? You're like a child. Okay? Because children are always saying, no rules, no standards. I have my needs. I have my desires. I have my feelings. I've got to have my way. <laughs> And like any child whose parents gave them everything they wanted, I got to tell you, your life will never have a solid sense of direction. It, it will never give you what you thought it would give you. And I would argue, I would argue that any parent doing this for their child is not acting in love in the same way that God never saying no to us and never holding us accountable would not be a loving God. So what I'm hoping is that you think this one through if, if I'm talking about you right now. And let me ask you, do you really want a God like that? Do you, do you have that much confidence in yourself, your own understanding of what's right and wrong? You see, I'm convinced that we all need wisdom and understanding that's greater than any one of us have. And I believe in our heart of hearts we do want and recognize our need of a righteous God. A God who wants the best for us and knows who knows what's best for us. And, and, and so what I'm saying this morning, okay, is Jesus Christ is the God you need. He's perfect in righteousness. He loves you deeply. He knows what's best for you. He wants what's best for you. And that's why he came to this earth. And that's why he died on the cross. To make all of this possible. Now, I'm just going to say this real straight, okay? I think one of the things that makes it hard for us, and it might be, Reason you're holding back 
Just wanting sin when sin is more to our advantage, more convenient, and more fun. Jesus pointed this out to Nicodemus when he said this in verse 19 and verse 20. He said, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So that might be you today. On the other hand, on the other hand, if you've got a God where there's nothing but wrath, no love at all, nothing but loss, no understanding of grace, no understanding of what happened on the cross, then you know what? You're a driven person. You can never do enough for this God. You'd, you try so hard to be moral. You try so hard to be good, and, and you often come short, and you always, you always feel so unworthy. And friend, if that's you, you know, I got to say to you, you know what? You're never going to, out of fear, be able to become who God wants you to be. It doesn't matter how scared you are that God's going to get you. Fear just doesn't do it. Love does. God's love. It's the love of God that inspires us to be what God wants us to be and more than inspires us. It's the love of God that gives us the strength we need because it changes us from the inside out. So, if you only see a loving God who never says no, where you only see an angry God who never says yes. Not only is it a distortion of reality, it will distort your life. And in one way or the other, you are deeply and profoundly affected by your view of God and your understanding of God. And so you see everybody, to understand that Jesus Christ is a God of love and a God of wrath is absolutely essential. It's critical to the way you live your life. How you think about yourself. It gives you a true understanding of your worth before God to realize that God values you so much that he gives you standards to live by. And he gave his son to die for you when you fail to live up to those standards. And how you make decisions. You're not making decisions on the changing opinions of what our world says is right or wrong, but on the eternal wisdom of God itself. It causes you to regard others with the same value that God has for you so that you want what's right and what's best for every person, and you want it so much that you, you, you have the courage to speak truth into them, but you do it with love. It impacts how you relate to the world around you. You're not driven by what others think of you, but you live in confidence, in the confidence of knowing that God loves you and that it's going to be worth everything to live in obedience to God's will because it's right. And then you live with eternity in mind. You're, you're able to live every no day knowing that life for you will never end 
and that you will, when you die, you will spend eternity with God in heaven because you understood and you believed that God, yes, God is a God of love, but God is also a God of wrath. And that's what the cross of Jesus Christ is all about. That he died for you. And it all points us back again to today's scripture. And I just want to read it again, all right, as I finish. And what I would encourage you to do when you go home today, in fact, this week, just read these verses over and over again. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God, through the cross of Jesus Christ. Rob's going to close our service with a very fitting song this morning. But let me just say this, okay? You might have come here today and when I started talking, you, you would say, boy, Steve, I have thought all my life any talk about God's wrath is absolute nothing, nonsense. I want nothing to do with it. And it might just be that you would be saying to yourself, but you know what? After listening to you today and hearing scripture, hearing the Bible, hearing these verses, it all makes sense. And you might say to yourself, well, I, I know I'm a sinner and I know God's a holy God. And now, you know, I understand I'm accountable to this God. And I just want to say to you this morning, when Rob is singing this song, you can have a conversation with God. And you can just say it, you can just say it the way it is. You can say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know you're holy. I deserve your judgment. But God, I know you sent your son to die for me. And today I believe in him and I trust in him. You can have that conversation with God and you become a child of God. You know what? The promise becomes yours. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life. Okay.